Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm going to go to hell. Time for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is serious. 231, look. Talk to the road. Send the police. Send the police. Any guys don't be here, I might. I said, I'm not trying to be here, I but the police are coming. One in the chest, one in the hip. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started, eating the heart and uh, the arm muscle. I'll, I'll wear a male car with his hands, look how he tails and just, just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would do it, whose life would be... I'd harm someone each time I'd kill someone, there'd be an enormous amount of uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards, but then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Mary Channing liked to party, which was frowned upon in Dorchester, England in the early 1700s. After being forced into an arranged marriage by her parents, Mary would go to murderous lengths to be three again. Jean Harris was the headmistress of the Hoity-Toity Madeira School for Girls in McLean, Virginia. She made national headlines in 1980 after the murder of her lover, Dr. Herman Tarnauer, a wealthy cardiologist and author of the best-selling book, The Scarsdale Diet. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saravan. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous and just plain fantastic patrons. Hey, Tara, Mm -hmm. patrons have access to loads of other episodes, including our um, divisive early stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. Jean Struven was born in 1923 in Cleveland, Ohio. Her mother, Mildred, was a stay-at-home mum, and her father, Albert, was a civil engineer. Albert was a clever but dour man who was known for his frightful temper. During those bouts of rage, he was anything but civil. He was hospitalised several times for manic-depressive episodes, which he received electroshock treatment for on occasion. Mm, Nasty. Yeah, I wouldn't like to have that. Albert worked long hours, leaving Mildred to look after the children and the household. Mildred was a Christian scientist, so when the kids were sick, they were prayed for rather than given treatment for their ailments. Is there anything thoughts and prayers can't cure? 
Yes, there is. It's chicken pox. Breaking with doctrine, Mildred took her son Bobby to the hospital once because his chicken pox would not heal. It was lucky that she did so, as doctors told her that Bobby would have died otherwise. Jean was educated at the fancy private school, the Laurels School, and went on to study history and economics at Smith. Friends at the time said she was polite and ambitious, but showed little interest in the college lifestyle. She wasn't much into spring break parties, beer pong or doing keg stands. This girl did not go wild. She did, however, make the cover of Girls Gone Mild, where she's pictured studying Latin while sipping herbal tea. Jean graduated with honours and married Navy veteran Jim Harris soon afterwards. Their eldest son David was born in 1950, followed by Jimmy in 1952. It seems James was the more well-liked member of the couple. A colleague of Jean's, Bertram Shover, said James Harris wasn't as forceful as she was, but a lot more fun to be with. I liked him a lot. A neighbour spilled the tea and threw some shade by saying, She was very pretty and very brilliant, but everyone loved him. He was a nice, quiet man. I'm not sure if Bertram or the shady neighbours were involved, but Jean and James Harris got divorced in 1966. Jean took up with the rich and distinguished Dr Herman Tarnower soon after her divorce. Classy, age-appropriate and well-coiffed, Jean caught the doctor's attention immediately. Well-coiffed? Mm-hmm. So well she coiffed. had good hair? She did. It was oh. very well-coiffed. <laughs> I love that expression. Yes. Herman Tarnower was born in Brooklyn in 1910 to Jewish immigrant parents Dora and Harry. He was an athletic and intelligent child with a good eye for business. As a teenager, he used the money he won from being a pool hustler and a card shark to attend university. Although his father hoped Herman would follow him into the hat manufacturing business, he instead studied medicine at Syracuse, graduating in 1933. So yeah, he could have been a hat maker, but he became a doctor. His parents must have been so disappointed. I believe a hat maker is called a milner. Uh, probably. Mm. Wow, you're just a fucking fascinating jukebox of facts, aren't oh, you? Oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> I like hats. I know. I visit milners. You like big butts, small pigs and nice hats. I do. <laughs> That's the name of my autobiography. Oh, your fourth autobiography? Well, I have to update it all the time. <laughs> At university, Herman enrolled himself into a speech class to get rid of his Brooklyn accent and develop the dulcet tones of the refined type of gentleman he hoped one day to become. Hey, baby. During World War II, Herman joined the U.S. Medical Corps in Louisville, Kentucky, earning himself a reputation as a brilliant doctor. He would be transferred three times to different military hospitals where he was considered an excellent physician. He was also selected as one of two doctors to lead a study of the possible after-effects of radiation suffered by the civilians at Nagasaki. After this, Herman left the service and returned to the affluent area of Scarsdale, New York, to found the Scarsdale Medical Center, where he specialised in cardiology. Here, all those speech classes paid off, as he treated successful pillars of society and was highly respected by his patients and colleagues. Sure, every now and then he probably accidentally said... Can you please get me a coffee? And had to pretend he was just quaffing. Coffee. <laughs> Herman was in his mid-50s when he met Jean. He was considered by many to be an austere man who detested small talk. Lovely weather today we're having. Fuck off. 
An acquaintance of his named Kenneth Rawson said, I don't think anybody knew him very well. He was very self-contained, very opinionated. Nobody talked to him. He lectured you. He reminded me of the Hollywood idea of a Prussian major general. So I guess he had information, vegetable, animal and mineral, huh, Barney? I guess. Architect Robert Jacobs, who was a close friend of Herman, saw another side to him, saying, He was a very outgoing guy, a very humorous guy. Robert attended many of the doctor's fancy dinner parties, where the wines would be chosen with a delicate nose and the food prepared by Dr. Tarnover's French-born cook. Ooh la la. Hmm, nice body, warm bouquet. Might chase some pigs around the yard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like that. At these elaborate dinner parties, Herman entertained a circle of rich and important friends, usually six to eight interesting people. So, yeah, you wouldn't have got invited. What? <laughs> Herman loved to travel. That was so crabuffle, damn it. Herman loved to travel, often taking Jean with him to exotic locations where he collected works of art, including a large, ornate Buddha statue that he kept on a small island in the middle of a lake on his estate. Herman also liked to hunt. He fished for marlin in the Bahamas, shot game in North America, and went on African safaris, often bringing back his kills to be stuffed and hung as trophies amongst his sizable collection of guns. Herman regaled Jean with gifts early on in their relationship. He also acted as her doctor, or more realistically, her drug dealer. See, Herman prescribed Jean Desoxy, which is a methamphetamine better known as speed. Uh, he prescribed it to her for her regular bouts of depression. So yeah, he's the pusher man. In 1967, confirmed bachelor Herman surprised all of his friends by proposing to Jean. But rather than jump at the opportunity to marry him, she put her children first, telling him that she couldn't pull her teenage sons out of school and send them to another school, so moving in with him was out of the question at that point. Now, by the time her sons had finished the school year, Herman had changed his mind and decided against the idea of marrying Jean. He probably noticed how much other fine, well-coiffed white lady poontang was available and he wanted the buffet to stay open 24-7. Oh, yeah, I see you're bringing back the word poontang there, Well, remember, we established that 2019 is the year of poontang and it's it's like May already, dude. Well, well well-coiffed poontang too. Well-coiffed poontang all the way to the island. Herman suggested to Jean that she should see other men and told her that he would never be able to commit to her. Although Herman was honest about his intentions, it seems that Jean held out hope that he'd want to settle down with her at some point. Perhaps she really was addicted to Herman, or, more likely, addicted to speed. But Jean didn't take his advice. She kept dating Herman exclusively while he was out there spreading his love around. Herman hired a young woman named Lynn Triforus to work as a receptionist at the Scarsdale Medical Centre, and it wasn't long before Dr Pantsman and Lynn started an affair that would last for several years. Hey, baby. Jean couldn't help but notice that Herman's affections for her had cooled, and she resented Lynn for displacing her. The fact that Lynn was 20 years younger than her did nothing to boost Jean's self-esteem. Herman wasn't exclusive with Lynn either. He didn't want to lose his seat at the all-you-can-eat poontang buffet. Herman kept banging a dazzling array of well-coiffed women, but Jean's jealousy was focused entirely on Lynn, who she thought to be unworthy of being escorted to dinner parties by a man as wealthy and esteemed as Dr. Herman Tarnauer. Jean and Lynn engaged in a long-distance catfight as they competed for Herman's affection. Oh, feud. 
Yeah. Tell cool. me more. Jean received obscene phone calls saying that she was old and pathetic that she strongly suspected were from Lynn. So she called Lynn every night for months, even after the younger woman changed her phone number. At one point, Lynn also did something that Herman thought was a little low class. What, she took a dump on his island putter? <laughs> No, she took out an ad on the front page of the New York Times saying, Happy New Year, hi T. Love always, Lynn. How dear a girl. She may as well have spat on his cravat. Or, you know, taken a dump on his Buddha, <laughs> on his, little, his, island, on his Buddha. island Buddha. No, he loves his island Buddha. Yeah, he does love his island Buddha. Apparently, Herman didn't appreciate her romantic declaration. When he saw it, he gasped and said, Jesus, I hope none of my friends see it. (sighs) Jean was with him at the time and she said, Why don't you suggest she use the Goodyear blimp next year? I think it's available. I like it when Jean lets her shady lady flag fly. In 1977, Jean became head of the very prestigious Madeira School for Girls in Washington, D.C., not to be confused with the cake. I like Madeira cake. Yeah, would you send your daughters there to study? Absolutely. It's <laughs> yummy. I know you like that word. The, the motto of the Madeira school was make haste slowly. What the fuck? Seriously, just because people have money doesn't mean they have sense. What is the sound of one hand making haste slowly? The school was in decline when Jean came on board, and during the next two years, she wasn't able to improve its reputation academically. In May 1979, a performance report came out that recommended that she be fired. (gasps) Yeah. Stress about her job caused Jean's depression to grow deeper, her use of speed as medication grew worse, and she bought herself a 32 revolver. As Jean's life seemed to be spiralling down, Herman's just kept getting better. For years, he'd been giving his husky patients a one-page sheet with a few rules for losing weight. Cut down carbs, sugar and fats, eat a lot of fish, lean meat, fruits and vegetables, and cut out alcohol. That last part is where he loses me. Mm. This advice was not very original, but he had some friends in publishing who convinced him to write a book about the diet. Hey, Herman, you know that one-page diet thing you give your husky patients? How about turning it into a 240-page book? The Complete Scarsdale Medical Diet was published in 1978 and it became an instant bestseller. Gene Harris helped him write it and is thanked in the book. The publication made Herman a celebrity. He got even richer and he went on the talk show circuit. It also engorged the buffet of attractive ladies that were open to him. Well, coiffed poontang. That raining, was it. Raining out of the sky. Ah, it's raining. Well, coiffed poontang. Hallelujah. Call the doctor. <laughs> well, I am a doctor. <laughs> On Friday, March 7th, 1980, the Dean of Students at Madeira found marijuana stems and seeds in the rooms of four of the school's best students. <gasps> Jean and the school administrators expelled all four teenagers. Calm your tits, school administrators. You can't get high off stems or seeds. Angry parents and students weren't afraid to point this out to Jean and make their rage known. No one. Stressed about the events. (laughs) (laughs) No one. It's two syllables in that word. Fuck you, (laughs) Graeme. Stressed about the events and out of speed... 
Gene phoned Herman. He said he'd send her more medicinal speed and then broke the news to her that she would not be sitting beside him at an upcoming banquet in his honour after all. Gasp. No, no, no. Her seating arrangements had been demoted. And to make matters worse, her love rival Lynn would also be there. Jean hung up the phone feeling disappointed and unloved. The next day, angry parents confronted Jean about their daughters being expelled. One mother pissed her pants, had a rage stroke, and told the headmistress that if I had known you ran this school with your own Gestapo, I would have never sent my daughter here. Good day to you. Jean Harris's mental state was deteriorating under the pressure and she was becoming increasingly depressed and anxious. She later testified, I remember very distinctly Saturday morning going in and out of my bedroom several times. I wanted to clean it up, but I didn't know how. I couldn't decide where anything goes. I didn't know which pile of paper went where. Just hanging up a dress seemed to involve more decisions than I could cope with. Mm, I know she feels. Pants are complicated sometimes. Once I forgot how shirts work. Just once? Well, you know, a couple of times maybe. But the buttons, you know, they're pretty quite complicated. I like press stats. Jean sat down and wrote a rambling 10-page letter to Herman, detailing the many wrongs she'd felt he'd done her. Of the banquet to be held in his honour, Jean said that she would be there. Even if that slut comes, indeed, I don't care if she pops naked out of a cake with her tits frosted with chocolate. Sounds like a dare to me. Yeah, does sound like a dare. Sounds like our meetup. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to happen. In the letter, Jean went into detail about some heinous wrongs she'd suffered at the hands of Lynn. Jean wrote that Lynn took a brand new nightgown that I paid $40 for and covered it with bright orange stains. She also stated that she found one of her dresses that she'd left at Herman's smeared and vile with feces. Oh, she probably used it to clean off the Buddha. Well, that's right. I mean, she did that, so... And that's true. And that happened. <laughs> no, it didn't. Jean said she'd found other clothes that she'd left in the closet at Herman's destroyed too. She wrote... I called your slut to talk to her about it and see what she was going to do about it and she said, you cut them up yourself and blamed it on me. Jean also accused Lynn of stealing some of her expensive jewellery and said, I only hope if she hocked them that you got something nice as a gift. Maybe I gave you some gold cufflinks after all and didn't know it. Then she put the sheets of paper together in no particular order and mailed it to Herman Tanoa by registered mail. This is like a really extreme old school version of drunk texting, isn't it? On Saturday the 8th, Jean wrote a will. She also had second thoughts about what she'd written in the letter and decided that she didn't want Herman to read it after all. She called him on Monday the 10th and asked him to throw it away as soon as it arrived. Next up in this free-falling shitstorm, Jean received a letter of her own from one of her favourite pupils who wrote to her about her disagreement with her decision to expel the four pot-smoking girls. The girl told Jean that since so many Madeira students smoked grass, it was hypocritical to so harshly punish four of them. This letter, combined with everything else that was going on, was a devastating blow for Jean and she decided to kill herself. Whoa, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But before she died, she wanted to see Herman one last time. Man, I so wish that she'd realised she could buy speed somewhere else and left Dr Pants' man in her rearview mirror, but she didn't. Jean called him up. 
He was as empathetic and caring as ever, brushing off her pleas to see him and telling her to call him back tomorrow. She even begged him to let her come visit him. Eventually, he said, suit yourself. Jean felt a deep sense of calm come over her as she drove the five hours to Herman's house. She said she figured her life would be over soon, so she didn't need to worry about anything anymore. Her plan was to have a nice chat with Herman, then sneak off to the lake that was on his property. She was going to go to the tiny island in the middle of it, with the statue of the Buddha sitting peacefully atop. Here at the lovely little lake, she planned to put a bullet through her own head. Jean arrived at Herman's place after 10pm and let herself in. She carried a pocketbook with her loaded gun in it and a bunch of flowers. She found Herman lying in bed, entirely unimpressed by his uninvited guest. Won't you talk to me for just a little while? Jean pleaded, but he was giving her the cold shoulder. Feeling like an idiot, Jean said, Oh, uh, I left a shawl here. Then she went into the bathroom to get it. As she turned on the light, she saw a negligee and slippers and a box of pink curlers that belonged to Lynn. Jean screamed with rage as she grabbed the negligee and went back to the bedroom where she threw it on the floor. Then she went back to the bathroom and chucked the box of curlers through the door. They hit a window, which broke. She was still having a tantrum when Herman came up to her and slapped her across the face, medicinally. Jean ran back to the bathroom where she continued to throw Lynn's things around and make a scene. So Herman slapped her again, even more medicinally. Hearing the fracas, Herman's live-in housekeeper called the police. The second medicinal face slap was the charm, and devastated Jean slumped down, telling Herman, Hit me again, hi. Make it hard enough to kill me. Get out of here, he replied. You're crazy. Now, there are different versions of events as to what happened next. As Jean tells it, she took out the gun and pointed it at her head. Herman stepped in to stop her and a struggle ensued, which resulted in Jean shooting Herman five times. Uh. Yeah. Okay, five times. Right. Yeah, five. Accidentally. Accidentally five times. Okay. Yeah. Also, the idea of him trying to stop her seems like, wouldn't he just be like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, I kind of imagine him just being like, oh, okay. Well, obviously it, he was out of medicinal slaps. Yeah, well, he I'm had. fresh out, darling. When he arrived, Officer Brian McKenna found 69-year-old Herman Tarnauer sprawled in an upstairs bedroom, bleeding heavily. Herman tried to speak, but could only make gasping sounds. Jean Harris said, I shot him. I did it. And she also said that she'd asked him to kill her. Jean was arrested for murder. She was later released on $40,000 bail and signed into the United Hospital of Port Chester for psychiatric evaluation and therapy. The three-month-long trial at the Westchester County Court in New York became a national spectacle. Jean Harris pleaded temporary insanity and accidental death, vowing that she'd never meant to hurt Herman and saying that she'd only wanted to kill herself. The trial was so captivating that the public were just dying to get themselves in there. So there were lines that actually went sort of around the block almost. <laughs> they were outrageously long. The general public were only allowed inside the courtroom for an hour at a time and then they'd get escorted out and the next lot ushered in. It was like a ride at a carnival that was so popular. Yeah. But that would suck if you got like a really boring bit. Yeah, or yeah. what if you're in the middle of a really good bit and a then they're like, off you mm, go. Salacious bit. Yeah, mm. salacious bit. At the trial, Shady Lady Harris was asked if she considered herself publicly humiliated by the fact that Dr. Tarnauer was seeing Lynn in public. And she answered that, 
I thought he was publicly humiliated much more than I. The most damning piece of evidence against Jean was the ranty and rambling 10-page letter that she'd written to Herman. Embarrassingly, the prosecutor, George Bolan, read the letter in its entirety to the court. It included some very revealing paragraphs about Jean's bruised and broken self-esteem. One such paragraph stated, To be jeered at and called old and pathetic made me seriously consider borrowing $5,000 just before I left New York and telling a doctor to make me young again, to do anything but make me not feel like discarded trash. I lost my nerve because there was always the chance I'd end up uglier than before. As Jean had admitted to shooting Herman, the question of intent was the main issue of the trial. Defence and prosecution lawyers produced witnesses who argued over forensics and the trajectory of the bullets. George Bolin argued that Jean had set upon Herman in his sleep and shot him three times, claiming that he put his hand up in a futile attempt at defence, then Jean shot him twice more and staged a scene in the bathroom by throwing Lynn's things around. Defence lawyer Joel Ornow was widely criticised for not properly preparing Jean for the trial. The jury wasn't offered the option of first-degree manslaughter, which would have had a smaller sentence, and the health professionals who tested and treated Jean Harris weren't called to testify in court. Arno would later state that he encouraged Jean to plead guilty to a lesser charge, but she refused. Um, Jean acknowledges herself that this was a big mistake, as it didn't give the jury a softer option to find her guilty of. She actually said that her lawyer listened to her and she wished she'd got a lawyer that didn't listen to her because she was wrong. <laughs> After deliberating for eight days, the jury found Jean Harris guilty of second-degree murder. She was sentenced to 15 years to life at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility in New York. With the guilty verdict, Jean was not legally eligible to inherit the $220,000 Herman Tarnauer had left her in his will. Well, he obviously had some affection for her. Yeah, he left Lynn the same amount, though. Oh, so. okay. <sighs> After the trial, an eminent Madeira alumni exclaimed, Mrs. Harris is most genteel. She's so very proper. The whole thing sounds so incongruous. Chief Medical Examiner for the County of Los Angeles, Thomas Noguchi, along with ballistic and bloodstain expert Herbert MacDonald, analysed this case in Noguchi's 1985 book, Coroner at Large. In the book, both men come to the conclusion that Jean Harris was innocent of second-degree murder and that she had indeed struggled to regain hold of the pistol with Herman. Their theory was based on unused police photographs and a 1984 inspection of the murder scene which had been preserved. So that's interesting that they decided that, because it sounds very illogical, doesn't it? It really does. Uh. In prison, Jean kept up her hardworking spirit. She wrote an autobiography called Stranger in Two Worlds and two other books about her time in prison, They Always Call Us Ladies and Marking Time. She also spent a lot of time working in the prison's children's centre. After serving 12 years of her sentence, in 1992, Governor Mario Cuomo granted her clemency on grounds of ill health after she suffered two heart attacks. Jean died on December 23, 2012, at the age of 89. Ironically enough, Herman Tarnauer had been working on another book when he died. It was to be called How to Live Longer and Enjoy Life More. Oh, Tara, the irony is ironic. Mm, it's very ironic. Mm, what a story. Yeah, it's um pretty intense. Wow. I feel bad for her. I, I mean, do too. You know, I I really wish she hadn't been in that situation where she did end up killing Herman. I wish for something more for her. 
Yeah. Hey, Tara. Yes, Barney? I know we haven't had one for a while, but do you know what time it is? Is it true crime nerd time? It is. Hey! Hey! True crime nerd time. True crime nerd time. True crime nerd time. I love true crime. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy, Tara? You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Gemma Astley from Ohio, and it's about the boy who was raised as a dog by Dr. Bruce Deed Perry. And she recorded it, so let's hear it. Cool. Hi, true crime fans. My name is Gemma, and I have a book recommendation for you. The book is The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog and Other Stories from a Child Psychiatrist Notebook by Dr. Bruce D. Perry and Maya Svalovitz. Dr. Perry is a senior fellow of the Child Trauma Academy. He's worked as a researcher and lead psychiatrist at various institutions and has even consulted for the FBI. Maya Svalovitz is an award-winning journalist in science and health. The book is a series of case studies that demonstrate the physiological effects of trauma on children, such as how severe neglect of infants can lead to a range of issues from being socially and emotionally maladjusted to severely violent, even psychopathic behaviour. Potentially of most interest to true crime buffs is the chapter on the Davidians, the infamous cult led by David Koresh in Waco, Texas. Dr. Perry was called in to assist with the release of 21 children from the compound and to help secure the eventual release of the remaining children and cult members. Sadly, as we know, this never came to pass. His insights on the lives of these saved children are truly shocking and provide information I've never found anywhere else. The chapter on the so-called satanic panic is also very detailed and interesting. Although it can be a little clinical at times, this is an engrossing read and often deeply moving. I highly recommend it to anyone curious about the effects of trauma and true crime nerds alike. Thanks to Tara and Barney for the awesome podcast and this opportunity to share a book wreck with others. Cheers. Thanks for that, Gemma. That's great. Yeah, that was awesome. I'll check that out. Now, if you want to submit a true crime nerd time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for instructions on how to do that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, Barney Black, I believe it's time for you to get murdery. Mary Channing was the daughter of Richard and Elizabeth Brooks and was born in Dorchester, England at the beginning of May 1687. We don't know exactly when, as birth records in the 16th century weren't great. No. Especially for the lower and middle classes. She was born into a family that was relatively well off, but being anti-Baptist, the children were not baptised at birth. Is that a Baptist who goes into anaphylactic shock? No, Anabaptists did not believe in baptism until adulthood when education and experience enabled an individual to make an informed decision. 
Okay. Sounds fair, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Mary was only baptised as an adult in 1705 after her crimes, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Life was shittier and much harder in 18th century Dorchester compared to today. Crime and punishment was swift and cruel. Oh, like my last few relationships. <laughs> yeah. Women were seen as property and had few rights. Also like your last few relationships. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it's not far off. Two years before Mary's birth, the bloody reign of Judge Jeffreys had dropped upon Dorchester, where he hanged 74 and transported 175 of the Monmouth Rebellion. Mary was a younger sister to six brothers. Her father owned three pubs in Dorchester, so she was around a lot of men. A lot of dude energy going on there. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. Being the only girl explains why she was spoiled by her well-to-do da. Her parents gave her a sort of education that in the early 18th century was deemed suitable for one of her gender and rank in society. Namely, she was taught to read, write, and Instagram. You know, mostly photos of uh, cat's ears and pantaloons. Oh, she liked using the filters, did she? Yes, she did. Ah, sexy. Mary led a most ordinary life, but she has been described as having no aversion to sluttishness, meaning in those days an untidy appearance and excessive casualness in her speech. I'm taking that personally. (laughs) You should. (laughs) There was speculation that this was caused by her mother's frequent absences from the home and too kind and loving father implying a lack of proper parental control and supervision, some surmise. Oh. There are references in some writings to the consequences of neglect of a pious and regular education and not enough spiritual guidance during her childhood. There are also references to her father, Richard Brooks, doing quite well for himself, so Mary was spared the fate of work, unlike much of the population of the time. That sounds good. It does, doesn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. What would Mary fill her time with, Tara? Graphic novels and glamping. (laughs) Close. Mary's parents clearly tried to prepare her for presentation at social occasions. For example, having her taught to dance. But their newfound wealth meant she wanted for nothing. Having gained more liberty, she formed her own friendships, initially with her neighbours, and began to delight too much in the vanities of entertainment. Oh, Gradually, her former sluttishness changed into an affected gaiety and gaudiness. Some say she partook in ribald humour. As she grew, her parents sent her on visits to Exeter and London. They believed this would reduce her rather rude and unpolished carriage into decent comeliness. (laughs) But with no real supervision, she spent time in the company of local riffraff. Much like yourself, Tara. Yeah. On return to Dorchester, she was back to her old tricks with her neighbours and had many parties without her parents' knowledge. One young neighbour, let's call him John, won her affection and they began to meet at friends' houses and at pubs in which she frequently bought him copious amounts of wine and whatever else she thought might take his fancy. Oh, okay, so she's paying his way. Mm. Oh. She'd happily pay for all his drinks just to be close to him, and as a way to prove her love, she made him many presents, presents of ruffles and scarves. One of them was so incredibly fancy and adorned with lacy frills and sparks of gold that it was considerably valuable. Do you think he hocked it to buy himself some more wine? Probably. (laughs) Now, Tara, to continue in this way required a good supply of English pounds, and on several occasions she managed to persuade one of her confidants to collude with her in robbing her parents of significant sums of money. 
Her frequent meetings and entertainments with her lover John, although originally clandestine, became the talk of the village. Upon hearing this juicy gossip, the townsfolk of Dorchester were shocked and appalled. One writer of the time described it as not living within the bounds of modesty. <laughs> not living within the bounds of modesty! <laughs> <laughs> Some of her more reliable friends tried to warn her off the potential consequences, but Tara to no avail. Now, in a strong Puritan rooted town like Dorchester, some blowback was inevitable. I hate it when I get blowback on my fancy cravat. Oh, yeah, that's the worst. Uh huh. One of the town's preachers, upon hearing of Mary's situation and having known her for some time, took it upon himself to approach her to ensure she was aware of how her conduct was being viewed and the potentially ill consequences of such a schlumper life. Yo, slut tits. Legs crossed, mouth shut, go home. <laughs> That's exactly That's what, what he, he said. said. He ragged her out for concealing her practices by lying and the calamities this must eventually bring upon her. Preach nagged her to live a more regular and unblameable life. His attempts were initially met with anger and scorn and an undaunted justification of her actions. Yes, Mary told Preach to go stick it up his rectory. <laughs> but the preacher persevered. Mary grew calmer, thanked him for his care, declared she had done nothing wrong and told him to mind his own business. She professed that she loved John, denied giving him presents and wished she might never enter the kingdom of heaven if what she said were not true. The preacher did not believe her and told her so. With a loud humph, Mary said, I will wish you good day, sir, and stormed <laughs> off. Teenagers, eh, Tara? Oh, yeah. Nothing's changed. <laughs> Mary's answer to the town gossips was to step up her game of affected gaiety and gaudiness. Now Mary actively sought out the company of several other young men in town. Oh, well, if I'm going to be considered a slut, I'm going to be the biggest slut Dorchester's ever seen. Is that what she said? Yes. She usually met these tasty fellows through a dancing class she took fortnightly in Dorchester. After the lessons were over and the tutors had left, that's when the horizontal dancing took place. Ah. Hey, baby. <laughs> she also tried to get herself invited to all the private balls held in Dorchester. <laughs> and there are many private balls. Oh, yeah. Especially in Dorchester. Yeah, oh, and, they were all private. Well, that's right. And even organised one herself where those who attended were given elaborate gifts. She kept her hosting of the ball a secret from her parents by making use of a gentleman's house in town. Entertaining now played a key role in her life to such an extent that she was never happy unless she was a centre of attention. Squad goals. Mm -hmm. Mary the Queen Bee would frequently entertain several other women at her father's house as he was rarely at home. So think Taylor Swift during her 1989 phase. Oh, right. You're picturing uh, that? Yeah, I am. Bunch of supermodels going to her house, patting her cats, mm. talking about boys. That's right. Her mother, also being busy, made scant inquiry into her conduct and Mary took care that when she was around there was nothing untoward to be seen. As soon as her mother left, however, more expensive food and wine were brought into the house. <laughs> really start to like Mary. Yeah, she sounds fun. Mary's cavorting and Jezebelian ways became the talk of Dorchester's gossips, but Mary continued to drift from one extreme form of pleasure-seeking to another. <laughs> a gentleman in town not known to the family was sufficiently appalled by the impropriety of Mary that he informed her parents, first by a messenger and then more than one letter. <laughs> Twelve, actually. 
really? Dear Mr. and Mrs. Mary's mum and dad, your daughter's a schlumper. Make it stop. I can't handle it. Yeah, pretty much. Freaking me out. Well, what was the answer to this? Um... I'll tell you. Okay. Mary's parents hoped an arranged marriage would fix the situation. It was a rather vain hope on their part that a husband would exercise more control over her than they had been able to. Mary's publican father, Richard Brooks, made it known that a considerable fortune would be given as her dowry, and this, not surprisingly, brought forth many suitors. Edward. One of these was Thomas Channing, a young gent from the Manor of Maiden Newton, eight miles northwest from Dorchester. Thomas had six siblings and was the second born of Richard Channing and wife Elizabeth Bartett. Thomas was eight years older than Mary. Thomas had now completed his grocer apprenticeship and was now expected to marry and bear children. His father had a shop in Dorchester for him to run. To Mary's parents, he seemed like a bit of all right, so they pressed for the match. But Mary's affections were elsewhere. Yeah, she still got it hard for John. Oh, yeah. Ah. Well, she was downright rude in Thomas Channing's company. I'd probably make him like her. She completely blanked him. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, some guys are into that. Mm. In private, she said in company that if her father forced her into marrying him, contrary to her wishes, she would rule him. (laughs) I actually don't doubt that. Although the extent of her aversion to him was not known to her parents, Thomas was aware of her feelings and he started to fix his sights on another woman. That's probably for the best. Mary's mother, however, was resolved to try everything possible to make her daughter accept him. After some sharp words, Mary was confined to her bedchamber for a week. Well, she grounded her till she agreed to marry someone. Yes. <laughs> well, being, well, being deprived of her beloved entertainment and conversation, she soon promised to amend her ways, but this was possibly just false words to get her folks off her back. Yeah, probably. Mary would still not entertain the nuptials with Thomas, so she persuaded one of her close friends to ask her lover John to marry her. To Mary's dismay, fuckboy John said, Hey, baby, yeah, nah. Yes, Tara, he said no. Yeah, well, he didn't want this uh, sweet poontang buffet of his to ever close, did he? (laughs) I love how you got poontang in there again. Oh, yeah, I'm going to get poontang in everywhere. Mary now felt cornered and she began to look upon Thomas as a person she might find easier to dominate than her parents. The next day he was sent for. Mary formulated a plan and their marriage was agreed on. It was to be in two days' time. Oh, that's pretty speedy. I guess they want to, want to hand her over to Thomas before he comes to his senses. Yeah, or well, before they get tuberculosis or the plague. Oh, well, yeah, that too. On polio. The couple were married on the morning of the 15th of January, 1704, when Mary was still only 18 years old and Thomas 25. It was not what Thomas expected. The wedding reception consisted of Mary dancing and drinking with her ex-lovers and friends, rather than showing any affection for her husband, who she publicly ridiculed. When the night ended, Mary joined her new husband in bedchambers, but she turned her back on him with scornful disdain, and could not be persuaded to change her posture despite the repeated persuasions of Thomas. Hey, baby? Hey, baby? Nah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nah. Needless to say, the nuptials were not consummated, Tara. In the following days, Mary's scant interest in her husband went unabated when he returned to his grocery business. She initially would not accompany him, but eventually she would, but under protest. (laughs) 
She soon, however, began to grow weary of such company and made excuses to return to their home and into the arms of her former companions. Her love for her John was not diminished by her marriage, and although she refrained from seeing him in public, they met privately, and at one such tryst, she presented him with a gold watch as a sign of her affection. Man, she is so digmatised by this John guy. She really is. She began to frequent public houses and inns throughout Dorchester again. Mary would have lavish get-togethers at her home, serving expensive wine too. These events were concealed from her husband, being made on Sundays whilst he was absent at church or on other days when he's attending to his grocery business. So while he's off at work, she's partying on down. That's right. She did not exercise any constraint upon her behaviour or even try to hide it now. At more than one arrangement, her talk was so ribald and her actions so lewd that sailors blushed and ran from the room. That really sounds like some iTunes reviews about me. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Her conduct and extravagant expenditure came to the attention of Thomas's father and convinced that she was ruining his son, he put a stop to his credit in London, which in turn meant Mary had reduced means. This would not do. After only a few months of marriage, Mary obtained some poison white mercury from a neighbouring pharmacist's maid and fed it to her husband the next morning in a dish of rice milk. On tasting it, he complained that it made him feel sick. Mary threw the remainder into the privy and washed the dish, but even the small quantity which he took made him quite ill. He was violently sick, but thought nothing of it. No, happened a lot, did it? <laughs> Apparently. Puked up all the time. A neighbour's dog, however, scarfed down part of his spew and was immediately taken ill, which aroused suspicion and a doctor was sent for. He gave Thomas Channing medicine, after which he appeared to recover. Was it speed or a slap in the face? Both. What kind of medicine? Oh, it was both. Okay. <laughs> later, however, Tara, his pains returned. It was later suspected by many that Mary gave him a second dose as she stayed by his side throughout which was a bit unusual for Mary. Well, yeah, she tends to run from him, doesn't she? Yes. He worsened the next day and firmly now believed that she had poisoned him as Thomas wrote his will, leaving his entire state to his father except for one shilling that he left his wife, stating, having every good reason to give her no more. Ooh, Ben. Now, the leaving of one shilling in a will was fairly common practice at this date and used where a person who might normally be expected to inherit was being excluded. As such, it was a simple and effective way of preventing them from contesting the will, as it showed that they had indeed been considered. That's clever. It is, isn't it? When it had become known that she'd obtained poison, she pleaded with a Mr. Warmington, that's the pharmacist, mm -hmm. to not do her a diskindness. Thomas's father, however, hearing of his son's illness, stopped this. He had to talk to the pharmacist. Uh -huh. And then he kicked her out of his son's house. Well, I mean, yeah, she hasn't exactly ingratiated herself to him. No. Thomas suffered in excessive pain until Sunday when about nine o'clock in the evening he expired. Wow. Like, did they say much in, in your research? Um, but th did they say much about him? Because, I mean, it doesn't sound like he did her wrong or anything. No, not really. Yeah. She just found him annoying, so she killed him. Yeah. His father, being suspicious about the cause of his death, had a post-mortem carried out by a surgeon in Dorchester who discovered poison throughout his body, especially in his lungs, which were almost entirely discoloured with it. Oh. So it sounds like he had quite a bit of that uh, rice milk. Yeah, yeah. Him. Oh, no, I don't like it. I'll probably eat it all, but I don't like no. it. 
Local constables carried out a diligent search throughout Dorchester, but Mary was in the wind. Fearing arrest, she had fled to Charlton Wartbourne in the county of Somerset, where she hid with a relation of her brother's wife. But one of her friends who had hidden her, encouraged by the reward and terrified of being made an accessory, confessed to police and Mary was soon arrested. Back in Dorchester, Mary was quite contrary when questioned by the Mayor, John Nelson and Justices of the Peace. Mary declared her innocence and voluntarily offered to clear herself by going to see and touch her husband. Touch him where? I do not know. What's that all about, Touch, touching a dead body? Well, I'll tell you, Tara, it was a custom of the time, if it did not bleed, she should be deemed innocent. But once someone's dead, their heart's not pumping, and so they're not actually going to be gushing with blood out anymore. 18th century science. Oh, sorry. Right? Yeah, yeah. That explains it. Science. Absolutely. Refusing to answer any further questions, she was sent to the town jail. Mary's trial began at Dorchester before Justice Price on July 28, 1705. Her indictment was read out in English and at her request was repeated in Latin. She pleaded <laughs> not guilty. Do you think she actually could understand the Latin or she was just trying to fuck their shit up by doing that? Never uh, know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Bit of both. Yeah. The first witness stated that on Thursday before Thomas Channing was poisoned, Mr. Nail was at Mary's house and in her company, and they spent their time eating and drinking and in mirth. Well, how dare they! <laughs> Next, her young lover John gave evidence and stated that after her marriage, he was with Mary at an alehouse in town and that she had given him a watch, but he refused it, although now he admitted... It was in his possession. Oh, my God. He sounds like such a bum, doesn't he? Mm. Next, the pharmacist's maid testified that on the 16th of April, Mary asked her for some rat's bane. Yum. <laughs> she told her that they'd run out, but there was some mercury in the cupboard, mm. which she gave her. Mary gave her a farthing. I assume that's some kind of British currency. Yes, yes. I don't think it's like a I don't know, pinch on the bottom. It's not a velocipede. No. It's not a pinch on the bottom or, I don't a, think or so. a bike. Well, that's ruled those two things out. Oh, great. Science! <laughs> Next, Robert Martin, a boy, confirmed the former evidence and that he was in the shop when Mary came to buy the poison. He said to Mary, what are you going to do with it? Will you put poison in the sugar? If you do, some person or other will poison themselves with it. She replied, Kiss my ass, you young rogue. If you don't hold your tongue, I will knock you down. Yeah, what right does he have to ask her what she's doing with her poison? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Elizabeth Cozens, that's a name, mm. is Mary's housemaid. She testified that Mary boiled some milk with rice and took it to Thomas. Elizabeth then heard her master say his milk was gristy. <laughs> Your milk's gristy. My milk's gristy. <laughs> Thomas also uh, said, according to uh, Elizabeth Cousins, Mary's housemaid, mm. that he could not eat it and that, he, and that her mistress persuaded him to try it again. Just a little bit more gristy milk. Come on, you can do it. It's an aeroplane. Upon Mary asking him how he liked it, he replied very well, but he could not eat much. Oh, he was being polite. About half an hour later, he vomited and said he was very sick that a dog licked up the vomit and was taken to vomiting likewise. 
Oh, the vomit dog ate his vomit homework. I know. This this party's gone to, <laughs> to a strange and sad conclusion, mm, hasn't it, this yep, party lifestyle? Very much has. The doctor said, being sent for, he gave Thomas oil and water to cleanse his stomach of the poisonous matter. And then he slapped him, got him to do a line <laughs> of speed. Get a hold of yourself. But after Wednesday, he grew worse and finding the poison had seized his lungs, he told friends he would die. The doctor also stated on Sunday his pulse was quite gone and at about nine o'clock he died with a hisking cough like a rotten sheep. Oh. That's how I want to go. That's kind of, that's kind of how you are when you're alive. And su- after sucking down some gristy milk, that's how I'm going to go. <laughs> Mary conducted her own defence and made such an extraordinary defence for herself that the judge declared he thought himself not capable of making a better one. Ah, well, she charmed him. Mm. But all her efforts were to no avail because after about half an hour's deliberation, the jury returned and brought in a verdict of guilty. That's not even enough time to have lunch. In the evening, the death sentence was passed. But she pleaded her belly and a jury of matrons found her indeed to be with child. Oh, doesn't sound like it would be her husband's though, does it? No. Her sentence was postponed until after the birth of her child, and this raised the hope and possibility of a pardon. Mary gave birth to a son on December 19th, 1705, which was baptised at her request. Her father, fearing her speedy execution, renewed his efforts at a pardon, but again failed. Meanwhile, Mary contracted a violent fever, not surprising with the dank conditions in jail. Very dank. Mm, jails are dank, especially back then. Oh, very oh, the dank. The dankest. The dankest. Mary refused to allow her child to be taken and continued to breastfeed him, which further weakened her body. Attach the infant to my gristy milk pillows. In this rather pitiful state, Mary was again brought before the bar and asked if she knew any reason why the former sentence should not be carried out, to which she said nothing apart from maintaining her innocence of the crime. Her time now being short, the Reverend Hutchins renewed his efforts to get her to make a confession, which she refused. She had, however, asked to be baptised. This the Reverend Hutchins initially refused as he did not believe her repentance to be honest. This was, however, overruled by other clergy, senior clergy. Mary received her baptism on Sunday, March 17th. Good for her. Yeah, sure. Why not? And then she was a very nice lady afterwards and she didn't party or swear. It was to be a busy day at the infamous Mornbury Rings in Dorchester on the 21st of March 1705. There was to be three executions and the townsfolk were completely stoked. At lunchtime, two men were hanged, one for housebreaking and the other for killing his wife. Mary Channing was to be the main attraction. Oh, she had a couple of opening acts, eh? That's right. Mary was brought out of the prison and pulled in a cart by her father's and husband's houses to Mornsbury Ring. Not a horse pulling the cart, people. Right, okay, all right. Yeah. I don't know, I was picturing a shopping cart and it's not right. Here, Mr Hutchins and other clergy continued with her for some time in prayer and pressed her again for a confession, but Mary would not budge. Renowned English poet Thomas Hardy wrote of Mary Channing 200 years later. The sheriff then proceeded to his biggest and last job, and with this girl not yet 19, now reduced to a skeleton by the long fever and already more dead than alive. Mary was then fixed to the stake at about five in the afternoon. 
she again professed her innocence. Mary was first strangled into unconsciousness, and then the fire set alight, and in the sight of 10,000 spectators she burned to death at Dorchester's ancient Roman amphitheatre, Malmesbury Rings. A man who witnessed the scene wrote, Her heart leapt out as the fires consumed her. Wow, I never thought I'd think that it was good that a woman was choked into unconsciousness, but um, before being set alight, probably a good time. Some people wrote at the time that she actually woke up during oh, the burning, no, but I, I can't not. confirm that because I wasn't there. Well, apparently um, the smoke's meant to make you pass out before you get too Smoke burnt. inhalation? Yeah, oh. so hopefully... Um, ugh, what, a, mm. what a horrible way to go. Did they burn men at the stake too, or was it just women? Only for really terrible crimes. This crime was seen as a very terrible thing because of the hierarchy of the day, a woman going against her husband by yeah. killing him. It was almost unheard of. That's why she. Uh, it was deemed that she get the, the, the really rough uh, punishment. Yeah, yeah, we'll make an example out of her and no women will ever do it again. Ha! <laughs> Failed. Thomas Hardy continued in his Times newspaper article in 1908. Malmesbury Ring, Boardington, was a scene of as sinister an event as any associated with it because it was a definitive event. I am not convinced that she had been given a fair and impartial trial tainted by the detrimental aspersions universally cast upon her character, nor that the evidence brought against her was anything more than circumstantial. She was slut-shamed. Yeah, but the, I the, mean... The, the, the public outcry... Yeah. So they were kind of more mad at her for being who she was rather than the crime itself. Exactly. Um, but were there any other suspects in the crime? Or Not does that it I seem like find. a bit of a slam dunk? I, I think she probably did do it. She's going to come back and haunt you for uh, saying that. You know what they use those rings for now, that Roman amphitheatre? For rock festivals. Oh, okay. Well, uh, it's got some character, hasn't it? Yeah, it's still there. You can see photos of it on the internet. It's all grassy and it's lovely. It's a grassy knoll. There was a second. Well, it's a ring of grassy knolls. Oh, I, I. A grassy knoll ring turned into a that's burning of, ring of grassy knolls. That's the name of my fourth album, Grassy Knoll Ring. Yeah, that's the one that you did with Shannon Knoll, right? Oh uh, no, I did it. <laughs> I did that with Christy Milk. Oh, I love Christy Milk. I love Christy Milk. Now, before we do Aussie as, let's get to some listener feedback. Yeah, let's do that. Rhonda L. Ostwald posted a picture of a sign in our Facebook group that said, "People are eating children in this area." Please leash your dog and clean up after them. Thank you. Now, as a dog owner, I find it particularly unfair that I'm supposed to leash my dog and clean up after the child eating cannibals. How is how is what they're doing something I should be... I mean, they shouldn't be eating children in the first place. Yeah, it's a bit rough, isn't it? Yeah, and if they do, I mean, not in public. Dragana Angela Dawn posted a meme that said, I'm a writer is always a great excuse. Why are you researching Aztec culture? I'm a writer. Why are you searching poisonous flowers? I'm a writer. Why is there a dead body in your attic? I'm a writer. Works for Stephen King. You could pretty much just say I'm a podcaster now, couldn't yeah, you? Yeah, totally. Oh, oh. <laughs> Sarah Campbell posted a meme titled How to Be a Beautiful Woman. It said, walk like you own it. Show up uninvited. Wear whatever the fuck lipstick colour you want. Remember that black hides blood stains. Swords or poison? It's up to you. You can drink whatever you want in a skull goblet and there's a curse for every occasion. Mm, wise words. Damn straight. Damn wise words. Michael Lucy shared a comic of a man kneeling down to give advice to his young son. The caption says, Son, if you can't say something nice, say something clever but devastating. Ah, uh, absolutely. 
I've got a question for you, Tara. What is Aussie as? Tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I would. Melissa Fraser sent us a message which said, would like to bring your attention to the guy who robbed a servo on the Sunshine Coast with a recyclable shopping bag on his head. Now, I looked into that and it was pretty funny, but unfortunately there wasn't enough information on it. But it did lead me to this bloody legend. Police rushed to the 7-Eleven on Ash Street, Flinders View in Queensland, following calls for help from two terrified shop assistants. A young man had entered the store around 4.30am wielding a chainsaw while two staff members were cleaning a coffee machine. He was wearing a flower pot over his head in an effort to conceal his identity. Hang on, he's got a flower pot on his head and he's wielding a chainsaw. Yep, a running chainsaw. Sweet. Wielding his chainsaw, the man lunged at the shop attendants who scampered into a back room. The man then used the chainsaw to totes fuck up a window and several display racks in the shop before pulling down his pants and mooning the terrified shop attendants. He brown-eyed them. Yep. Sweet. Flower pot on the head, running chainsaw, all leather facey, pulled down his pants, showed him his bumhole. Although he demanded money, he didn't get any and actually just left the store with a bottle of soft drink and his chainsaw, of course. Bottle of pop. A bottle, a bottle of, of soda. Pop. Yeah, some passiona or something. Yeah. Um, and, of course, he stopped to chainsaw up a car in the parking lot on his way out because you would. A police officer en route to the service station noticed the man walking down Ash Street shortly after the incident and arrested him. It seems that wearing a flower pot on your head actually doesn't make for a very good disguise. No? No, it makes you easier to see. Oh. Members of the dog squad then followed a trail back and found the chainsaw which the man had stolen near the scene of the crime. Leichhardt teenager Stephen Frank Steele, probably known as Steve-O or Steely or Steelo or Steve-O Dan, was later charged with one count of armed robbery, two counts of willful damage, one count of going armed to cause fear, one count of public nuisance, one count of possessing suspected stolen property, and one count of showing his ass to people who did not want to see it. He will probably end up being our new Prime Minister after next week's election. Mm, you might be right. Vote one, Steve-O! Mm. Show us your bum. Where's your chainsaw, Steve-O? And I'll be running on a platform of showing my bottom to people who don't want to see it. Yes, I shall also chainsaw up some shit. All and, the votes, And Steve. steal a bottle of Pasciona. Yeah, that's it. Mm. Uh, look, you know, as valid as any of the policies we've been hearing about. Ah, absolutely. Thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. And who bought the drinks this week? I believe it was Kelly Jordan. And she writes, Dear Tara and Barney, thank you for visiting my state with Sheila L. episode. That was the last one we did. Yeah, that's right. Never knew that shallow vag syndrome could turn you into an obnoxious status. Uh, keep cool. Regards, Kelly. Live free or die. Live free and die. Yeah, well, you know, it's eventually going to happen. We'd also like to thank our Facebook moderating team, now led by the wonderful Lorraine. Thank, thank you. you very much for all your hard work. You rock, Lorraine. Mm-hmm. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes, uh, particularly in Australia, actually. We're pretty low there. We are. Mm. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. You can follow our Facebook page or join our group. Um, on Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod. And on Instagram, we're at Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, Bloody Murder Podcast. 
the news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Now, before we before we completely sign off, let's tell you about our meetup next. Our meetup, yeah. So um, we're nominated in the Australian Podcast Awards, which are in Sydney on Saturday the eighteenth. And since we're there, we thought, why the hell not do another true crime podcast meetup? Uh, so far, the lineup's going to be us and, of course, Cambo, Alex and Ben from Mall, Sarah from Let's Talk About Sex, and Michael from Forgotten Australia Podcast. It's going to be super fun to have drinks and, and, and meet with some of our listeners, and there'll also be lots of giveaways and some maybe some surprise guests. Yeah, and, you know, maybe some weird pants. So that's 2 p.m. Sunday, May 19th. It's at the Marlborough Hotel. It's in the beer garden there, and that's at 145 King Street in Newtown. So if you're in Sydney... And you want to come hang out with some independent true crime podcast makers and people, cool folks... That's right. Get your ass along. I can't promise I'll wear pants, but uh, well, we'll you see. Know, I, I hope there's a ball pit. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. So thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Hey, Tara. Yes, Barney? You know a few years ago when I used to pull the coin from behind Dexter's ear? Uh-huh. And he'd go, you have to tell me how you did that. How did you do that? You have to tell me. Yeah. And I used to think that was pretty funny because it's a, you know, it's not really magic. No, it's just that you're holding it in your hand. We were talking about it the other day in the car, and he said, you still haven't told me how you did that trick. <laughs> oh, he's a sweetheart, isn't he? He is a funny kid. Remember that time when we were talking? And I don't know what I said, but it was nothing to do with any of the Transformers. And he marches up to me, points his little finger in my face, like, you know, pointily, and goes, Don't you say that about Optimus Prime, Tara! They had they had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Yeah, he really ragged you out. Yeah. Was that a barbecue or something? We were standing yeah, outside. in the backyard. And I was just like, dude, I wouldn't ever say anything bad about Optimus Prime. Don't smack I, talk Optimus I, Prime. I wasn't saying, don't do it. And then he was like, oh, you weren't? Oh, oh okay, fine then. Uh, well. Yeah, that kid, he'll stick up for Optimus Prime. So road trip next week. Yeah, we got to go on a plane. On and a it's plane. Tiger Airlines, so who knows if we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> Cheapo. I hope, I hope there's not a crowd of chickens next to me. There probably will be. Yeah. Well, I plan on bringing one. That goat to ate feed my boarding pass last time. <laughs> well, you know, that's what you can say this time too, even though it's probably not true. Really? Stripey piglets? Yeah, stripey piglets. Oh, you'd like to grease one up and chase it around the lounge room, wouldn't I you? Would, I would catch it. It'd take some time. Yeah, catch it, but then it would it'd wriggle its little piggy body out of your it grasp. It wriggled out of my grasp and, I would, and the chase would be on again. It would be. <laughs> <laughs> Is this what's going to happen at the meetup? Pretty much. We're oh. going to be chasing piglets all Greased night. up piglets. Greased up piglets all night. <laughs> and we shall catch them and upon release we shall chase them again. Yeah. <laughs> and Cambo will be in his own little ball pit with a bottle of spiced rum. Yeah, that's right. I might join him there for a spell. Oh, I can completely see you in the ball pit. No, but no. I reckon you. I reckon I couldn't trust you in a ball pit. I reckon you'd be one of those people that weed in the ball pit because well, you didn't I, want to get out to go to the toilet. Well, that's true. I'd do a poo in there too. <laughs> Probably. But I wouldn't trust Cambo too. He'll do that yawn trick, you know. I put his arm. He'd be sitting you. next to me, and then all of a sudden he'll yawn, and his arm will be around me. And you'll be like, 
Hey, baby. I'll be, hey, baby, Campbell. And he'll be like, boom, fucking nugget, bunny. <laughs> boom, fucking so nugget, bunny. Boom, fucking bunny. <laughs> hey, baby. <laughs> hey, bunny. <laughs> Get in my ball pit. Get in my ball pit now, bunny. <laughs> you, me, ball pit now. I'm well, feeling the rage, Barney. I'm, I'm feel, feeling the rage. Feeling the rage. Join me in the ball pit. <laughs> Bring the pigs. Bring the pigs. Wow, if I can catch one, Cambo. <laughs> they slip out of my grasp. The chase will begin again. <laughs> you fall down all the time when you're trying to chase greased up piggies. I do. Yeah, it's pretty funny to watch. Uh, Oh, Camber, I might join you in the ball pit. I've been chasing little piglets all day. <laughs> I could do with some spiced rum, thanks. I got a glass of spiced rum. It would, would be nice. <laughs> I enjoy a fine drink in the ball pit with Cambo and some greased up little piggies from time to time. Well, it's just a Tuesday here in Brunswick, isn't it, really? <laughs> Mary Channing liked a pate, which was frowned upon in... <laughs> Mary Channing liked to party, which was frowned upon. Mary Channing liked to party. Now, I'm going to do it normal, I think. <laughs> normal? Well, you can try. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see that. Probably wouldn't recognise it if it happened. My nose is, my nose is itchy and my bum's runny. Oh. Should be oh. the other way around. Well, look, just neither of those things appeal to me. Oh, no, you're into it. I am? Yeah. Am I secretly into it? Do I love it? Yeah, yeah. I was reading your diary last night. Dear diary, (laughs) the things that Barney says, oh, he is such a delight. I love when he talks about his bum. Anything to do with his bum is hilarious. That happened. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I I just wrote it over and over again. Barney's bum equals lol. Mm. Ooh, I couldn't see you on the front cover of that. No. Girls gone mild. No, girls no. gone mild. No. No. No, that's nowhere. Nah. Not nah. with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> nah. No. Mm, fucking. Yeah, nah. Yeah, nah. Fucking schlumper schlatt tits went loud. <laughs> schlumper schlatt tits went loud. <laughs> Drunk well, schlatt tits went loud. <laughs> yeah, you've been on the cover of that like four times, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like Oprah with the Oprah magazine. I invented the magazine just so I can be on the cover of it. Oh. Yeah, Lady Swears Monthly. Lady Swears Monthly. <laughs> yeah, get that cockroach out of my cunt. What? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I was taking my jumper off. I thought I'd just say whatever words happened. Oh. Also, it's a true story. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Gene. Oh, I, I mean to be well coiffed, but I'm bald. Well, oh, your body oh. hair is well coiffed. Well, I have to tell you a secret, mm-hmm. by the way, Tara. What? I'm losing my hair. What? That's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight. <laughs> Just freaking out over Barney saying that he might be losing a few hairs. <laughs> I know. That's not true. It's, it is. I feel like it's all right, I can admit it. But you still have the same amount of hair. It's just that, like, it fell off and then it got stuck to your back and it's still there. <laughs> My hip back's not that hairy. Well, that hairy, like, compared to what? A jumper? <laughs> a sheep? Moving right along. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should stay here longer. I like it. It's nice. Hey, baby. The plane on the. <laughs> the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. You have to put seven marbles in your mouth and still talk. Oh, the rain in the plane. Yeah, that's how it works when I do it. <laughs> oh, the rain in the plane has to get out of your yeah, ass. Is that what no. you said? <laughs> a small island in the middle of a lake on your estate. What would you put on the island, Tara? A bottle of spiced rum and Cambo Ford in a ball pit. 
What would you put in yours? I was thinking six small pigs and an albino gorilla. <laughs> what would they eat? Eat each other. Oh, right, okay. I have to replace them and replenish them constantly. <laughs> so if we're sharing an island, let me just get this straight, it has six small, pigs, six small pigs. Hang on. So if we share the island, it'll have six small pigs, an albino gorilla, Cambo Ford in a ball pit drinking a bottle of spiced rum. Yeah, and he's half naked. Well, he's got his fisherman's, his fisherman's pants, pants on. Fisherman's pants on. Yeah. And his, um, his true crime island nipple tassels. And an albino gorilla. And just making him drinks of spiced rum. I want to go there. I want to go to there too. Sounds like fun. (laughs) Herman loved to travel, often taking Gene with him to exotic locations, where he collected works of art, including a large ornate Buddha statue he kept on a small island in the middle of a lake on his estate. I thought I was going to make it. No, you did make it, did you? I came close. You'd think a cambo chasing those pigs and going, oh, fuck it, I'm getting in the ball pit. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, pretty much exactly. Yeah, you're reading my mind. Okay. Just a little bastard. (laughs) I'm fucking long now. These guys are hard to catch. Oh, Barney, did you have to grease him up so much? <laughs> Tara, do you know how to get the pigs in here without chasing them? Yeah, use my net, Cambo. It's okay. <sighs> it's too much, isn't it? It's just the highlight of my day. It's this is going to be funny if we can do it straight. So no, it's all right. I'll get there. I just um, I'm not used to laughing this much, and it's it's like you kind of don't want to stop. You just get stuck in the manic loop of it all. Yeah, and yeah. Also, it's such a vivid picture with this, the greased up pigs in the ball pit, Cambo. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's my happy place. It really is a nice place. I want to live there. I want to go to there too. Okay. He fished for marlin in the Bahamas. And Marlon was not happy about it. Shot game. Marlon Wayans. Yeah, he fished for the Wayans brothers in the Bahamas. Actually, that sounds so racist. Yeah, it does. He fished for Marlon Brando in the Bahamas. When he was young, he was hard to catch. But Uh, when he got older, you didn't even need to try. You just harpoon him. That was his white whale. Yeah, it was his. (laughs) The sea was angry that day. (laughs) And Marlon Brando was angrier. Now the only name coming to mind is Herman Munster. Richard Pryor. Apparently Marlon Brando and Richard Pryor used to like bang each other for sport. Quite frankly, I like that. They had sex. Yeah. I like that story. Yeah, don't you think it's interesting? We're talking- Can they come to our island? <laughs> of course. But of course. <laughs> All right. Sounds good to me. Hey, baby. I'm writing you a prescription for sexy time. Take two of me and call me in the morning. Oh, my God. Too much well, po- uh, well-coiffed poontang in here. Is anybody a doctor? Oh, yes, I am. Oh, I'm a doctor. Oh, indeed. Oh, yes, 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 I am. <laughs> I'm not Mr. Close. I'm, I am I'm Dr. Dr. Close. <laughs> I'm like the cookie monster of poontang. <laughs> nom, 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 nom. Wow. Yep. Hang on. I'll just go and fetch a ladder. Um, for me to dig harder. <laughs> for you to get out of that hole, you just the cookie monster of poontang hole. You, you are you are deep in the poontang hole, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you'll ever come out. I'm the cookie 
monster of poo tag. I could lure you out with some greased piglets, I believe. <laughs> Just throw the piglets down here into the poontang hole, yeah. man. Ah, they like it. It's muddy. Yeah, it is muddy. It's very, very too, dank. Too, yeah, very dank. Too easy to catch, though, I think. When they're in the... Oh, no. no. It's very slippery in here. No. Oh, yeah. I know. I know. Oh. You saw my face. I'm going to fetch another ladder. I'm going to get some towels and boil some water. <laughs> Something needs to be cleaned. She was going to go to the tiny aisle. <laughs> Cambo's in the pool pick on, hey. Hey. Hey, hey Gene, what you doing? Boom, fuckalunga. Come have a spiced rum with me. Help yourself to a piglet <laughs> if you can catch them. <laughs> Watch out for the albino gorilla. He's a little bit grumpy today. <laughs> and then he'd start singing Elvis songs in his lovely voice because he'd oh. probably had a few. He does. He does have a lovely singing yeah, voice, really Cambo, does. doesn't he? Yeah, he does. <laughs> oh, this island. Uh, we we, we apologise for all the Cambo's people. We're going to be seeing him this weekend. Um, next weekend, next yeah, weekend. for the for the awards for the and at the meetup, awards. and we're excited. And Cambo's Cambo's for um, he's at the forefront of all of our minds with those greased up piggies and the ball pit <laughs> and the albino gorilla and the spiced rum. <laughs> this has been ruined. She planned to go to the Tony Island. It's <laughs> <laughs> like a really depressing part of the story. I really want to go to the Tony Island too. <laughs> I want to go there as well. Oh, uh, Cambo's there waiting for us. I know. And there's greased up peas. And maybe if Jean had come out, we could have talked her out of all of this and like, you know, like, Got her to have a drink with us and gone, oh, sweetheart, he's not worth it. That's right. Fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the perfect definition of making a rod for your own back. <laughs> it really is. As she turned on the light, she saw a negligee and slippers and a box of pink curlers that belonged. <laughs> Tiny island. <laughs> Tiny island. <laughs> Islands in the stream with a gorilla. <laughs> Lots of little pigs. Hey, there's Cambo too. <laughs> also, I'd probably be like, could you actually go to the lake to do that, please? It's messy here. Hmm. Say hi to Cambo for me. <laughs> And staged a scene in the bathroom by like, shitting on a Buddha. <laughs> well, Cambo cheered hey. from the ball pit. No, he doesn't like to cheer too loudly because that attracts the gorilla. <laughs> well, it does, yeah. Oh, but then he can just like duck down you and hide himself a, in pigs. Just throw a small pig at it. Well, if you can catch one. Well, they're very hard to catch. They're very speedy. I know, they're so slippery. You grab them by those curly little tails. Oh, but they don't like it and they get all squealy. <laughs> I'll touch my tail. Oh, is that how I get spoiled? That's if right. I get a time machine of some kind and, well, just a different life. It's just not going anywhere, is it? Yeah. You, do you want me to go and fetch that ladder and housemaid's knee? <laughs> oh, ouch. And Ricketts. <laughs> Don Ricketts? Don Ricketts. I love him. He's so funny. <laughs> he was great in Casino. He was wonderful. I think it's Rickles, though. No, I think you're right the first time. Yeah, it's definitely Ricketts. Fearing arrest, she had fled to Charlton Wartport in the county of Somerset. Charlton she- Wartport? Where you, where you plug your warts in? <laughs> what 
What the hell is that? I think it's Wartborn. Wartborn. What the bloody hell is that? Fearing arrest, she had fled to Charlton Wartborn in the county of Somerset, where she hid with a relation of of her brother's wife. (laughs) (laughs) He's mooning you on purpose. Back in Dorchester, Mary was quite contrary when questioned by the mayor, John Nelson, and justices of the peace. Is that mayor? Mayor. Back in Dorchester, Mary was quite contrary. (laughs) (laughs) Do it all like that. Get out the aid, Edmondson. (laughs) Back in Dorchester. (laughs) Oh, that was beautiful. (laughs) Why haven't you been doing it like that the whole time? Oh, oh, I've got a, I've got a breast, like pretend to breastfeed one of those like greased up pigs, and then just go. No, you can't have any more. For my milk is gristy. I've always, I've always thought your breast milk was gristy. <laughs> uh, well, stop t- drinking it then. That's how I want to go. That's kind of, that's kind of how you are when you're alive. And su- after sucking down some gristy milk, that's how I'm going to go. <laughs> You're going to go out to that that abandoned little island with the Buddha and Cambo on it and drink your gristy milk. <laughs> then eat your rice milk. <laughs> you got to eat it all and not puke, though, because what if the gorilla or the pigs eat it? I don't want my albino gorilla. Getting eat, sick. Getting sick. No one wants your albino gorilla getting what sick, if, Barney. What if my six little piglets lick it up? That's just it. We don't want that to happen. Mm. Cambo will have to try and catch him. <laughs> Shouldn't have greased him up so much. You know, he, he, he's a he's a muscular lad, but he can move quite fast. Mm. Mary gave birth to a son on December nineteenth, seventeen o five, which was bat pie. Bat, bat, a, a bat pie. <laughs> it was a bat which ate a bat pie <laughs> with a side of gristy milk. <laughs> gristy milk is the name of my fourth band. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Christy Silk and the Gristy Milk. <laughs> I love Christy Milk, but I like their earlier stuff better than their latest stuff. Yeah, I like their old stuff better than new stuff. They're just like, they don't swear enough now. Mary Gay... No, what did I do? Uh, that's your Christy Milk face. <laughs> <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 